1: Hi, this is Sally Kate Holmes, Managing Director of Next Chapter Podcasts, here to tell you about a pretty cool new offering from our friends at Apollo Podcasts. You can now find the Play On Podcasts on Apollo Plus, a creator-owned platform where every subscriber helps audio fiction creators such as us. You can listen ad-free, early access to exclusives, behind-the-scenes, supercuts, and more on Apollo Plus. On top of all that, 70% of the revenue on Apollo Plus goes directly to creators. Join Apollo Plus through the Apollo Podcasts app or by going to apollopods.com.
2: Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. Henneth Cavender and Andy Woke are here with me today. Kenneth is the translator of the play on podcast series The Tempest. His writing for television, stage plays, adaptations, and translations have been widely performed both in the U.S. and abroad. In the U.S., he has been represented on Broadway and at many regional theaters, including the Guthrie Theater, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Yale Rep, uh, Williamstown Theater Festival, where he was a founding director of The Second Company, and New Haven's Long Wharf Theater. In the UK, his works have been presented by the Royal Shakespeare Company and London's Mermaid Theatre. His writing for television includes award-winning documentaries, dramatic series, and specials for the BBC, ITV, and PBS, and Movies of the Week for CBS and NBC. Andy Walk is the director of the play on podcast series The Tempest. He is an award-winning writer and director for film, television, and theater. He was at the Carnegie Mellon School of Drama, where he earned his MFA, and he taught there in the John Wells directing program. Andy's writing and directing career began with a much-lauded HBO movie, Criminal Justice, which made Time Magazine's 10 best list, starring Forrest Whitaker, Anthony LaPaglia, Rosie Perez, He has been nominated for the Director's Guild Award twice and the Cable Facts Award as Best Director. He's directed numerous episodes of shows such as The Sopranos, Damages, for which Glenn Close won an Emmy Award, and The Practice. He has also been a writer and director on many movies, including Deliberate Intent, FX's critically praised first movie, and the acclaimed Fighting the Odds for Lifetime. His other writing credits include HBO's Emmy Award-winning From the Earth to the Moon, produced by Tom Hanks. His career started in the theater. He directed Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and The Winter's Tale, each of which had successful off-Broadway runs under the auspices of Lincoln Center. He's directed plays at the Manhattan Theater Club. And he directed The Tempest and Timon of Athens at CSC in New York. Andy has been on the directing faculty of the American Film Institute, and he's been a creative advisor and artistic director at Sundance Institute's Writing Lab. I am honored to have these two (laughs) incredibly accomplished gentlemen on with me today. It is a pleasure to have you with me, Andy, Kenneth. Welcome to the Play On Podcast bonus (laughs) content series for The Tempest.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
2: All right, so uh, the two of you, this is not the first time you've worked together. Am I correct, Andy? Right.
0: No, we we it is. In, in fact, you know, we started we've been we've been friends for many years and colleagues. And we've developed scripts together over the years. And uh, and Kenneth then came to me with with his. Translation adaptations of Time and of Athens and the Tempest when uh Playon was doing them as workshops at CSC in the summer of uh, 2019. And and that's where we really started to work intensely on these Shakespeare adaptations.
2: Kenneth, can you tell us how you got involved in this whole Play on Shakespeare uh, endeavor?
0: It all
3: started um when uh the Uh, Literary Manager of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, um, came to me and said, uh, we're uh, making you an offer you can't refuse, uh, which is uh, to uh, translate in quote marks uh, a a Shakespeare play. And um, after I had finished gulping and thinking, well, this is a career, um, I decided it would be fun. And um, that was when the whole project of translating Shakespeare was under the aegis of Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Eventually, and I was the (laughs) guinea pig that translated the first of the uh, 30-odd Shakespeare plays, Time of Athens. I think mainly because it was such a terrible play that uh, the artistic director at the time thought, well, you can't mess it up too much because it's already so messed up. And I was very lucky in that the actual uh, production that emerged didn't take place at Oregon, but at the Alabama Shakespeare Festival, and the director then, uh, the then director Jeffrey Sherman took a chance and um, produced it, Lavishly, And the Oregon folks came down, and so did the Pitts brothers who were funding the whole affair. And um, they said, well, this can actually work. And that's how the whole uh, canon of Shakespeare came to be part of the so-called play-on effort.
2: So it's safe to say that we wouldn't be here together had it not been
3: for you. Well, more likely, I would credit Jeffrey Sherman, uh, who took a chance as the artistic director and of a, a well-respected company and uh, Shakespeare Festival, and um, took a chance on the uh, on the idea of presenting a um, modern verse version of Shakespeare. And the audience <laughs> responded.
2: And so the audience responded. How did what was the critical response?
3: Um, it never got beyond Alabama, I don't think. I never saw, I think USA Today picked it up and seemed to respond, but that was a long time ago. This was, I, seven or eight years ago, and I can't remember what else. And
2: so how did The Tempest then come into your purview uh, for translation as part of the play on Shakespeare?
3: Well, um, The Tempest after... Uh, <clears throat> Louis Doubted, the literary manager uh, who was still running the play-on uh, ver- uh, version of the original effort, um, had assigned all the plays. There was still one left over, and it was The Tempest. And um, by then, um, I'd been involved in other projects, but I thought, well, um, if Geoffrey would at Alabama would agree to do it, it might be fun to do The Tempest and uh, see what happens. And that's how it came about. So uh, how did you find Andy? How did Andy find you? Well, as Andy said, we'd been friends for many years. We'd worked on television projects. I knew him when he was at NTC. And I knew that the only person who could wrangle the kind of chaos that the uh, uh, summer project which was going to involve all 30 odd plays of Shakespeare staged in New York in stage readings with uh, a permanent company of I don't know how many there were. Andy, no, no. And the oh, only I- who could wrangle that chaos. And I'd seen his Twelfth Night. Uh, years ago and thought it was the best 12th night I'd ever seen. So who would be
0: more perfect?
2: Andy, what were your first thoughts when you were approached by Kenneth with this project?
0: Well, you know, I felt really lucky. I, you know, I love Kenneth's work. I, I, I love Shakespeare and I felt, geez, these are great. And and each of them, one of the things that he's done is his his writing is so elevated and so alive that it preserved the best of the Shakespeare, but it re- it really made it so accessible for a modern audience and and I had you know I I was really I was blown away by the scripts and I thought we can really make something of this and that one of the things that was really um, excellent in it is that, because we were going to be doing it in New York, I felt we could get really good New York actors. and the and, and we did re, you know, we had one, you know, one of the things that was unfortunate was that a, a great actor, a very close friend of mine who I had worked with many times, Mark Blum was going to play Prospero. And he um I, he injured his knee. he couldn't do it. And luckily, we had uh kevin kilner who was it was in time End of athens who i had brought in and kevin agreed to take over uh prospero and really gave a very good good performance in it and you know we had we had this very interesting cast and what happened with with it at csc in that that summer is that kenneth's writing has made what is a very complicated play clear so that you can understand it through the exposition through what through the happenings what happened beforehand and consequently the audience felt like they were seeing a completely new play they may have seen the tempest they may have known it but they didn't know it and they didn't know what happened on that boat and where it had gone and and i felt like his writing could make it come so alive with good actors, and and that really clearly happened at CSC in that first uh, uh, iteration of it.
2: I just want to mention that that wasn't the end for Kevin Kilner, right? He's in our production as well. No,
0: he's in he's in our production. A few bit uh, Jordan Baker, who also was in it, is is in our production. Um, Yeah, no doubt.
3: Basically, what was presented at CSC was supposed to be a series of staged readings. Uh, Most of them followed that uh, outline, and so they were indeed readings. Andy took and ran with the word staged. And (laughs) in fact, um, the dynamic versions that uh, the audience saw of Andy's productions were really standout.
2: When did you decide that you wanted to do this play as a podcast with us over here at Next Chapter
3: Podcasts? I kept in touch with Louis D'Arte, who runs the on Shakespeare. All right. Yeah. Uh, and she mentioned the podcast. And I thought, well, I was raised in England on radio drama, and some of my first work was done on BBC radio. And basically, the podcasts are uh, radio drama, as I remember And I thought, The Tempest, in a way, because it's such a, it's an episodic play, and it has several streams of action, an A story, a B story, and a C story, it lends itself very well to the uh, cliffhanger nature of an episodic radio drama. And that's when I called you and said, what about
0: it and you know and there's one other thing i want to elaborate on that which is that you know i want to get back to the cliffhanger nature of it but the i don't know if you know the play educating rita by willie russell but in sure. that play the young woman uh gets an assignment it's a teaching kind of thing that she has to come up with how to produce the very, very complicated Ibsen play, Peer Gint. Peer Gint, in many ways, has the kind of complications that The Tempest has. And so when she comes into class, everybody's got their big presentation, and she gives him a piece of paper with five words on it. And those five words are, do it on the radio. And, <laughs> and, and I think that in some way, by doing The Tempest as a podcast, we... I, I think have solved some of the issues of production where it happens in the imagination of the listener, where with, with the way the story is being told and the way they'll find out about way those spectacular masks happen, which are very very hard to stage, and um, that as as Kenneth said, it's it's a play that lends itself in a great way to this format if you have. The right script and the right actors which i think we do
3: yeah and i would add to that that um the theater uh the island is as caliban says full of noises and you can't quite have a constant soundscape in the theater you can but it's distracting and it's not a musical and so on and so forth but in radio uh the play and its uh, action lends itself perfectly to a soundscape that is becomes almost another character and that's something that andy has realized beautifully in this podcast
2: as we're recording this today uh, we uh, that is uh, andy myself and you are listening back to initial mixes for episode three of mm-hmm. six. We're halfway through basically uh, uh, the pro- the post-production phase mm-hmm. of this podcast series. Kenneth, starting with you, uh, is it in fact reminiscent of radio drama or is there something different about this type of production from what you've experienced in the past? I guess that's two questions in one.
0: I, look, can I answer it? Yeah, are yeah. you, you know, To To me, the major difference is that this is like making a movie. I've made a lot of movies, and my image of radio drama, and I've seen that, is you've got, you know, three or four actors, they're standing in front of microphones, and there's a some guy or woman on the side banging pots and pans <laughs> and doing sound effects live while it's happening, and maybe there's someone playing piano. This, we did a tremendous amount of really great. I mean one of the great things about what Michael does is sets up a, a a situation where you can rehearse. And we rehearsed each episode and we did it in sequential order, such a luxury. And then we did it um and then when we recorded it, we did it in sequential order. And then when and then it's edited and it was edited like we're editing a movie except without film, but doing the sound editing and then there's a composer. We have a great composer, Lawrence Schrag, who's composing a score that's really built into it. And then we have a wonderful sound designer and mixer and Lindsay Jones, who is creating that soundscape that Kenneth is talking about. And that all is, you know, gets put together in a mix over a period of time. So that it's it's much more, I would say, uh, complex than our old image of a radio play, although it's certainly is something made to be listen
2: to so more steps in the process and and uh i'm curious uh for you and you've d- directed a ton of uh film and television would you say that podcasts are easier or harder or is it a, a is the work level about the same you know in post-production with with a podcast with film with television
0: it you know i would say it's not it's It's different. It's not easier or harder. I mean, one of the things that is easier, for example, is we were, when uh, Larry Walsh, the terrific editor, and I were working on the sound, and there was one speech that Jay Sanders, who plays Prospero does. And in it, we had our notes in front of us that he did the first part of the speech really well in take one, and the second part of the speech really well in take three. Well, we, we wanted to put them together. If if this were a movie, we would have to find something to cut away to, you know, to Miranda or something like that, where we could. Le- here, you're able to put it together in a way, just edit it together because we were not seeing it, and and that it, you have to, in the you have to get used to that that you have that possibility. Just as I think Kenneth and I, when we we're working on the script realize we had to add in a lot of things like people's names so you knew who was speaking and a description of the action that someone would say hey you're pulling that cloak why am i why are you pulling that cloak over your head or whatever it was that there's there's a um you you have to put yourself into a different mindset um would would you agree with that kenneth
3: yeah totally and uh thank you for answering the question uh, because um If I'd arrived at an answer, it would be very like yours. I think there's one other thing, little thing, that uh, occurred to me as you were talking, that Shakespeare, uh, for all the reverence that uh, is owed to him, uh, isn't always perfect. And uh, there's a sense in which uh, when he wrote this play, he, he was having a rush of ideas, and he Put them all down, and he didn't always bother to um, do the structural work of setting up uh, characters and then uh, following his, his or her story through to uh, a satisfying conclusion. Um, and, you know, he's, he's a master magician, so uh, you don't notice it when a successful production takes place. But in radio, because you have to listen so hard, um, some of those little, uh, shall we say, uh, gaps that Will left in his script uh, need to be filled in. And um, it was fascinating to work out how, for instance, we established Antonia uh, as a character because for huge uh, tracts of the play when uh, the original character comes on in in theater, he or she is not named. So I don't know how an audience ever follows uh, that particular big scene when the castaways all discuss uh, their plight on the island. But but, uh, radio uh, allows us to do uh, to patch up what Shakespeare left a little bit ragged.
2: Kenneth that that brings up a question that I'd love to ask you, given your experience as a writer and your experience with classics, and having had such a, a sort of an intimate uh, relationship with Timon of Athens and the Tempest, do you feel like you have a sense of the way in which Shakespeare wrote? Do you do you you know what I mean? Like Uh, Was it, uh, do you feel like he was uh, writing in a rush, meeting deadlines? Um, Do you feel like there was a lot of time and care taken or was this just sort of like the, the spewing forth of, of, a, of a creative
3: genius? It's a little bit of both. He was obviously uh, horrifyingly talented and makes you totally uh, wilt in humility as you, uh, see the way he juggles the themes, the words, the characters, and the plot, uh, you know, uh, with two hands and five plates in the air. Um, he he was also a consummate professional, and he was working for an audience that he obviously knew, uh, and it was a different audience each time. I think, uh, Andy may correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Tempest was first performed for the court of King James. Mm-hmm. And the little mask was something that uh, it's possible that some of the courtiers took part in themselves uh, in terms of uh, 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 a 17th century audience participation moment. Can
2: you, uh, real quick, can you explain the little mask, what you mean, what you're well, referring the mask,
3: to? It, the mask is the mm-hmm. celebration, the engagement party that Prospero stages for his daughter and his future son in law, Ferdinand. And um, in it, he conjures up uh, uh, a number of Greco Roman deities uh, Ceres, uh, Juno, um, the rainbow, uh, Iris. And yeah. um, that is what by the way, motivates the famous speech uh, about
0: uh, where the stuff the dreams are made
3: made on. And um, that was something that uh, that kind of little um, home performance uh, for the aristocracy was something that Johnson wrote for, Ben Johnson, and um, Shakespeare included a little snatch of that genre in the play.
0: You know, know, one of the things that's interesting about their question, Michael, is that if, you know, if, you know, that that Kenneth did brilliantly, not only the Tempest, but also in Time of Athens. Now, if Time of Athens one day, um, you know, you all decided to, which would be great to do it as a play on the Time of Athens isn't completely written by Shakespeare. People think other people's hands were in it and that Shakespeare kind of put it aside, and then it got finished, never was really performed in his lifetime. And what we found when we worked on and did this workshop of time, is that Kenneth was able to knit it together in a way that it feels incredibly Shakespearean and also almost like a new play in terms of how how it comes out. And, and I think that that's partly because Shakespeare—it's—it's it's, of course bizarre to say it, but Shakespeare needed a really good collaborator on *Time in of Athens*. And when when he ha- when he has it, suddenly it comes alive. His view of society and in, in it, and, you know. So it's a really interesting uh, kind of process that you know Kenneth went through with, with and, and the other writers have gone through in coming to grips with what Shakespeare wrote in the 17th century or the late 16th century and making it accessible to audiences today
2: Andy. i want to talk to you a little bit about your experience uh with shakespeare and specifically uh the title of one of our episodes rough magic which Mm -hmm. comports with the title of a movie that you uh, wrote and directed called rough magic can you tell us a little bit about that project
0: uh, absolutely i mean it sort of came out of working on uh on on kenneth's both uh, both time and and the tempest and during the pandemic when you know a, a lot of production stopped i had, was turning down episodic directing you know in the mid, before the vaccine and with my friend elliot krieger we said we 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 started to think what would we like to write and he and he had written a short story about Shakespeare being drunk in the alley and seeing syllables of his sonnets flashing in front of him. And we kind of took off on that and and we, we wrote this script and thought, well, we'll just do it over zoom. You know, we got a great actor who Kenneth knows Tony Amendola to play Shakespeare. And as we did it over zoom, it, it hit on me. Why don't we make a film of this? And you know, it, it was about Shakespeare at the end of his career. At, I mean, the subtitle of it really is How I Wrote the Tempest. And the it was at the end of his career and coming to grips with what people, with has it been worth it? What price glory? And it was a great opportunity to think about all the stuff I I had been doing with Kenneth's Tempest and kind of put it into this of how Shakespeare was at a stuck point in his career saying, who am I if I can't write and finding a way to write that play. So, uh, you know, I've been in Tempest land for, for years now. I don't know that, uh, you know, I'm going to get out of it. Uh, And, and certainly it's, um, you know, doing the podcast and having, you know, Jay Sanders as Prospero. Again, you see how, when you have a great script, And you have a really great actor coming to you know it just illuminates it in a way that you know is so is so rich. I mean, one of the things that Kenneth and I did as we were looking at as we were structuring the episodes and um, giving them, you know, Kenneth gave them these great cliffhanger endings. And the ending of episode two, where where Prospero says, "I'm hungry for revenge," and I think that affected. Jay tremendously, because it became a driving through line for him in how he he came to grips with the role.
2: Kenneth, what are the themes that you feel or the, the, the sort of the, the through line that drives this play? Can you elaborate on that a little bit?
3: It's fascinating to me how much, how often someone aspires to power in the play. Um, It starts with uh, a story about someone becoming drunk with power, namely, Prospero's brother, or as we cast it, his sister. And pretty well, all the characters, including Caliban, or principally Caliban, uh, feel an urge to dominate to become the ruler of this little paradise. And in the process, um, you wonder whether they don't uh, or wouldn't, if they were uh, not prevented, turn it into a hell, in fact, um, given their human faults. So to me, there is a uh, a constant juggling with What are the uh, limits of power? What is this hunger for power? And ultimately, can you divest yourself of this urge to dominate?
1: join play on premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights and directors who brought it all to life. go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to play on premium to support the art and the artists. so power
2: and people's relationship with it. Is... and what
3: it does to you and what it does to you as a human being. And how it may be less or more than human. And this island is kind of a
2: symbolic in the sense that it represents everybody. All of these characters have some sort of relationship with power through the island. Yes,
3: exactly. And it's a kind of playground in which you uh, act out your fantasies of power and um, or. Shakespeare uh, lets the characters act them out and um, through Prospero come to a realization that it makes you less than human. And that is where he, Prospero, winds up as a human being. And that's what that little uh, message to the audience is at the end, I think. To the best of your
2: knowledge, either of you, is this... Up until The Tempest, did the metaphor of an island exist in literature?
3: Gulliver's Travels was after it. Uh, Robinson Crusoe was after it. In the
2: real world, in Shakespeare's time, there was this, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, I mean, the Brits uh, at the time would have called it this new world, right? Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. How... When was the Tempest written in relation to uh, uh, Europe's discovery of
3: post
0: long post? after, yeah, after.
3: afterwards. There's a the, there's there's one little clue. Um, Caliban uh, promises uh, the two clowns uh, Trincul and Stefano that he's going to. Um, collect all kinds of goodies from the island for them. And he mentions, I'll teach you how to catch a marmoset. Now, I don't know whether you know what a marmoset is.
0: It's like a little (laughs) raccoon, isn't it? Something
3: like that? Yeah, it's a a very cute little um, uh, ape. And uh, it only exists in, or at least at that time, in Brazil. And uh, so how did Shakespeare know about the marmoset? Um, It must have been something that was travelers' tales or sailors' explorers came back and said, there is this odd little creature um, that uh, we found, whether it was in Brazil or maybe it got captured there and was taken to another island in the Caribbean. Who knows? So... Shakespeare, for instance, could easily have been
2: uh, out at the pub with friends, talking to people who had traveled to this distant land, or these these stories would have been relayed uh, through word of mouth, this idea of this place, this mysterious land where, you know, only the bravest people were venturing mm-hmm. at that time.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, and I think that that sense of you know, and, and people had written about it, so there, there's a sense, you know, it doesn't have to even really be played up of what is the nature of colonization. That mm-hmm. you know, that 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 island, if you think of Caliban as the the native to that island, and the native that island has been colonized, and what does that mean? You know, at at the end of the play, when Prospero turns it back over to Caliban. You know, we—I think we have found in in the way Kenneth has done the text and in the performance—a way that Caliban is has a journey, and he's not just a um, a, a savage, but a- actually he's he's been somewhat changed by this, and there's a kind of grace. That that happens between Prospero and Caliban as as he gives the native back his native land and and that's a very you know and you don't you rarely or I've never seen that in a production of of the Tempest and I think it's a very strong moment of course Greg Mazgala, who plays uh, Caliban is wonderful in that um, but I, I think that that. Relates exactly to what you're talking about, about you know, who does the land belong to?
2: There were some real structural changes that were made in the crafting of this podcast series, yes,
0: yeah, huge.
2: Can uh, Can you elaborate on that, Andy? We'll start with you and, and Kenneth, if
0: you well, can. Well, I, I think that you know, the idea of um dividing it into six six discrete episodes is a very good idea and as kenneth started to work on it we started to talk about it we said we we have to end each episode with a kind of cliffhanger that may not have been there quite in in shakespeare when you're seeing the play in, in one unit And consequently, we we look to find those things and also to break up some scenes between Ferdinand and Miranda. So you don't shoot the whole thing in one. Same thing. The big scene with uh, Antonia, Gonzalo, Alonso and Sebastian, the very long scene. Kenneth had the great idea of splitting that up. And it's in two different episodes. And it it works, I would say, again, filmically to you know, in coming to grips with that structure in the um particularly in the first half of the play, so that it puts us into the story and keeps it alive to us in a way that breaking it up wouldn't have or- ordinarily done. I mean, it was really, you know, Kenneth found just great cliffhanger uh, a- endings.
2: Kenneth, can you talk a little bit about some of those structural changes, anything that Andy didn't mention? Yeah, that um, were...
0: There was
3: one moment, for instance, where um, I really wanted to end an episode with um, the moment when Sebastian is, a, or Antonia, depending on who's going to strike the first blow, was about to kill Gonzala. And the sword was raised, and we, the audience, supposedly, don't know what's going to happen next. Um, Unfortunately, there was no way to end an episode, and I tried it several different ways with that moment, without creating one enormous episode that would last an hour, and a tiny one that would last 15 minutes. So uh, and it was only Andy who, with his uh, deep knowledge of episodic television, who figured out uh, a way to uh, craft that particular uh, cliffhanger in that particular scene. Um, all of which is to say that if somebody was to sit down listening to the podcast and have open the original text of the Tempest uh, as Shakespeare wrote it and was following along or trying to follow along to see what we did with it, at least in the first half, they would think that we'd taken a sledgehammer to it and smashed it into little pieces and put <laughs> it all together again. So I don't know whether people do that who listen to your uh, other uh, podcasts, but um, I hope they don't do it this time because they will uh, think that we are certainly uh, uh, atavistic murderers of, of uh, Shakespeare
2: I want to talk a little bit about the character of Ariel uh, and how we in collaboration uh, have worked on on realizing this this being
0: yeah. of- Well, I think first of all, you know as as I learned when I first started in the theater, casting is everything and we you know and, and and you know michael and kenneth and i really spent a lot of time thinking about ariel we looked at different kind of you know musicians and singers and uh the casting director um at telsey karen cast castley came up with the idea of kuhu verma and i looked at her tapes and everything and and she is just an extremely talented and um, wonderful singer and actress, great sense of humor and and exotic in a kind of almost ethereal way that I think we were looking for in the part. And I think then two things really happened. One was that Lawrence Tragg, the composer who wrote the music, or three things, I would say. The music for her, you know, really... Um, empowered her her voice the second thing was that in uh, in when the script was put together the idea of making her presence known with a kind of whistling sound and lawrence used her voice and and dubbed over and did all to make that whistling sound and then on some of the key things michael had the idea of layering her voice on you know two different or three different takes of it on top of it and or also giving it an echoey quality that you know he felt with his you know your experience Michael and sound and doing these would add a kind of um otherworldly nature to her and and I think those things happened really at the heart of it energized by you know Kuhu's just wonderful qualities uh it has enabled this ariel to be really special that, you know that that's that's what i would say about it
2: i do want to mention Catherine eaton uh our adapter uh who kind of gets the ball rolling with um right. taking these translations and doing the sort of initial pass if you will of uh in adapting them into podcast production form i believe uh, she came up with that idea of the whistling. Yeah, it
0: was, no, I, no, absolutely. You know, all credit to her. She, as she was doing that initial sort of a- adaptation, had the idea of the whistling sound. And then that, and that would um, signify the entrance and exit of, of Ariel. And then, you know, Lawrence had the idea really uh, to use Kuhu's voice. And, um, you know, and that's, so that's how that came about.
2: That sort of came into play with Prospero's magic, right with the, the use of his staff. Uh, we recorded Prospero, we recorded Jay, um, basically emoting vocally. Uh, and uh, somehow Lawrence and uh, 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 Miles Bergsma, his his sound assistant, uh, melded all of that emotion together into this sort of hum. am I right? Yeah that?
0: it was yeah, they, they used Jay's voice, absolutely.
2: Kenneth, I'm curious to know how how you react to these the sort of uh, the sound design for ariel and and some of the magic here in in the podcast series. Are you pleased with it? is it is it sort of what you had in mind when we were putting these things together initially?
3: yeah, it, it was um, it was strange to hear Kuhu in rehearsal sometimes. It reminded me of. Uh, an almost um, non-human verbalization between singing, speaking, and uh, somebody or something who was trying to make itself understood, but for whom human sound was not natural. And that was wonderfully evocative. And the question about Ariel, which uh, always um, strikes me, is without Ariel, Prospero would not have been able to do any of the things that he does in The Tempest, let alone all the other uh, uh, powers that seem to be belonging to him, and um, yet he treats her almost like a, uh, a spoiled child, and mm-hmm. um, I don't think anybody has ever completely solved what kind of performance in the theatrical sense uh, Ariel should look for in terms of the acting, and I think what we found, or Andy and you all found, was the closest to that unearthly, inhuman force that she represents or he represents or they represent. Because I think there is a hermaphroditic quality to her.
2: Yeah, it's really thrilling listening back to the mixes now uh, and to the episodes when they get published, just to, you know, uh, sort of as you described it, uh, in some ways it really does take a village, you know, to to create... Uh, something as challenging, uh, I always say that that Shakespeare in all of these series gives us some or many impossibility exercises. I've experienced this as an actor working on Shakespeare plays on stage, uh, and certainly with, with an audio-only presentation, how are we going to solve this problem? Uh, and yet somehow we come up with a way. Uh, every time and and often the naughtiest, most difficult problems yield the most rewarding sort of uh, uh, pleasing uh, uh, results.
0: Yeah, I I think that, you know, it's funny, it actually reminds me, when I first was directing uh, Twelfth Night back in the day and I was rehearsing it on the east side at Manhattan Theater Club, and I lived on the west side. uh, And so every day after rehearsal, you know, six o'clock, I would walk across Central Park. And and this is Kenneth Kite, you know, was a raucous, very funny. I mean, really, really fun. And as I was walking across Central Park, thinking about what we just did in rehearsal, you, I would feel like Shakespeare there saying, well, you can do more, you can do better. You can go, you can go on with it. You can really just go for it. And, and I think that that, you know, is something that, uh, in you know, I certainly feel it with The Tempest, where, you know, the actors, you know, all, all of them, you know, it's funny, One you know, they're recording in the recording studio. And when Greg Mazdala, who's so great as Caliban. So one time we finished a scene and I had to tell Greg something. So I came out of the central area where Michael and I were. And I walked to the recording studio where Greg was. And I opened the door and I don't see him and i then i looked down and he's curled on the ground under the thing you know in this incredible caliban kind of position and and i thought no wonder it's so what you know he's so great and it just you know finding it in that situation it's, it's you know and and that kind of thing i thought he's going further than, and and he's a, it's a great example when when we started to edit his work it just pops off the off the screen, off the
2: you know. So you've worked in basically all the forms of entertainment, right? Yeah. Uh, from from theater, film, television, now audio. Do you have a favorite?
0: Well, it, it's much more material driven for me. In some way, you know, I, I think that episodic is tricky TV because as the director. You are you. You don't have the ultimate control that you want, or that you know to be the, maybe the lead collaborator in the village you're talking about, Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you got great material, like you know, written by you know David Kelly or David Chase or whatever, but you know, so to me, it's like some some things which I've written or dealt with other people, where you just fall in love with the material. It, and what's the best way to do it? So, like, for example, with this, I, I love what Kenneth has done with The Tempest. And it's, you know, we've done two or three different reading or workshops of it. it it's infinitely rewarding as a director and as a person. So that, for me, is really where, you know, that that I'm, I would say I'm very material driven.
3: How about you, Kenneth? Do you have a favorite medium? I I have different favorites for different reasons. Um, I actually worked in what I call steam television in England. Uh, That is before recording, before uh, telecine, as they called it there, uh, when the director had to plot out his camera uh, moves and do everything live as if it was a sporting event. And there was something, uh, I I did a couple of shows uh, with a very good director uh, called Michael Elliott, who was Marianne Elliott's dad, as it turned out. Mm. Uh, And uh, it was uh, very exciting. Um, And of course, there was always a time when camera three was not in position. uh, And uh, in the control room, uh, you had to improvise. So. That kind of instant gratification and excitement is a lot of fun. Theater is a whole other thing, which, uh, you know, in, in a way was my first love, but and uh, remains, I think, the, the primary love. But television, uh, in terms of that, not the steam television I described, but mm-hmm. contemporary television is also a big uh, kick for me.
2: Andy, is there any television like what Kenneth just described, sort of like that? It sounds like the the Saturday Night Live of the old days of uh, well, you know, Monty Python. You know,
0: some shows I've worked on, what Kenneth is describing, because it lets the actors really just go with it in a big way with the script and the way you know, I've done that on a show called Seal Team, where you have a couple you don't you don't do marking. You do a kind of basic blocking and the camera operators just go. they know the scene and they go find it and they're jumping around. And And that I think is that's the way a lot of um, actually Friday Night Lights. I don't know if you know that series that was mm-hmm. really shot that way. With And and, you know, some of weirdly, you wouldn't think it but some of Succession. I, I don't know if you saw Succession last, mm-hmm. uh, the the latest episode was on Sunday night, but the huge scene... Um, spoiler, you know, alert. We, spoiler
2: alert. Spoiler alert.
0: <laughs> spoiler alert. The huge scene <laughs> where they get the bad news and they're on the yacht. It was uh-huh. like a 27-minute scene and they shot it all in one take. On
2: and, film. And the, on, on film. On
0: film. So they had to be switching mags and, and with three cameras going. But for the actors... And, and of course a brilliantly acted and written scene, but I think that what Kenneth is describing, that kind of ability to be a little spontaneous and to know that the that the camera and the actor are doing a dance, I think is, you know, I think that's really, I think we're gonna see much more of it because every show now, you know, in TV and certainly movies that is shot with at least two cameras, often really three cameras, and, and I think that that, enables, so the actor doesn't know who's shooting them and it, it enables a kind of um, spontaneity and improv quality that I think is, is, you know, really rich.
2: Kenneth, what are you working on next or what do you hope to be working on
3: next? Well, two things. I, um, I'm working on an original screenplay that I'd started um, before The Tempest and took time off uh, to um, do The Tempest with you. And also I uh, had a commission, which started even before that, to um, do a version uh, of Sophocles' Antigone for um, Westport Playhouse. Uh, We're doing a reading of it, and in the course of the summer, And in the course of working on it, because of budgetary condition, uh, because of budget problems, uh, I was told that I couldn't have a chorus. And that has been a tremendous release. Uh, And so what has turned out uh, as a result of trying to uh, create a version of Antigone without a chorus is uh, somewhat like a political thriller um, along the lines of um, Imelda and uh, her husband, uh, the Marcuses, or um, even Reagan and Nancy Reagan, for that matter.
2: How about you, Andy? What's next well, for you, or what do you want next?
0: To I, well, I just um, finished a script with, with my friend Elliot called The Cantor of East Orange, and it is about you know, the temple that we belong to growing up in in East Orange, which was a rapidly uh, ungentrifying city. And it's about what happened between Jews and blacks in the, in the mid late sixties. And um, you know, it's just a producer just got the script last week. So very excited uh, about it. You know, there's one other thing I do want to say just about, the podcast and 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 michael really it's about you in that you know i think both kenneth and i feel just a lot of gratitude towards you for creating an environment where people can do their best work and to and being a supportive and involved producer who um who really sets a wonderful tone in terms of the crew, the people you know at the recording studio, and the people at you know Leanna and the uh, production management people and and the editors and all that. Really, an environment where where I think that Kenneth and I both feel really really supported and that you really know what you're doing and that it's an environment that has just been a total pleasure to work in. So I just want to put that out there.
2: Well, that's great. I'll rehire you for Time of Athens. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, Can I second that? Kiss, uh, kiss the ring and I'll get you another job. Huh?
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but th- Thank you. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Kenneth, I cut you off in the middle of a compliment to me, so please continue.
3: Oh. <laughs> oh, I want to second everything Andy said, who said it much more uh, eloquently than I was? A, would a, be able to summon up And uh, also for the uh, tolerance that you showed me uh, when I showed up uh, in the recording studio, uh, because I can be, uh, as uh, one of the characters of The Tempest says, or maybe he doesn't say it, but uh, certainly I can be a real nuisance in a recording (laughs) studio.
2: Not at all. No, not at all we uh, uh this was a true honor and a privilege for me to work with two such accomplished uh, artists and uh, it was a it was just a a great, great uh, ride all the way through and we're only halfway through.
0: We're only halfway Still through the. More mix. To do. Yeah.
2: So yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, continuing this process and yeah. uh just so incredibly grateful for your wealth of knowledge and experience and mm-hmm. these stories that you shared with me today. Been an honor Great. to have you with me. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcasts at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in Next C as in chapter podcasts with an S at the End dot com, where you can find other play on podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like the 500 the 10, the Tough Juice podcast with Karan Butler. How I got green lit and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts and the producer of this interview. Our audio engineer today was Jeremiah Tittle, and our editor and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts.
0: Next Chapter Podcasts.